speaking of taste, I think when I was reading through your book to prepare this, I was very impressed. I, I dig it. Uh, oh my God, Phew. I think I we think have a I lot was... of similarities in terms of the uh, styles as well. Yeah, shoot me over some of your stuff because I'd love to read. I think we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a conversation about it. But I think that again, when I got a DM from Heavy Board, I think I've been obsessed with Berryman for in different ways that have, I feel like my relationship with him has changed, but he's always still been a real linchpin for me over like the past 15 years. So I oh, think yeah. I was so thrilled to get a kind of message from Heavy Board and I was like, yes. Also, I love your I, I love your music, um, the music that you oh, have. That's was the Berryman. I think that that's sick. Yeah, I did. I I spent a lot of time making that, but <laughs> with the uh, putting like the custom kind of Berryman uh, readings into the. Uh... It's so good. I actually, um, his recordings I think are some of the most fun things to watch. I think because whenever I show somebody Berryman for the first time, I think obviously you start with. Dream Song 14. But I think that I'm always like, you have, I'm going to read it to you, and then you have to watch the video of him reading it because it'll change so much of how you're kind of intoning it in your head. Uh, um, I, I used to date somebody who was able to do the perfect drunk Berryman impression of like <laughs> the sort of like, uh, just in terms of the weird timings and kind of stilted ways in which he kind of puts the scissor and that really kind of confuses you. Um, I think that's the one thing I miss about that relationship, really, and nothing else. Yeah. I mean, Berryman, we'll get into this. Yeah, absolutely life-changing, uh, discovering that for the first time and just the boundary-breaking that happened in that in that collect in those, you know, the first 77 and then the regiment, like all those 300 yeah. songs. It just the... I always say, because, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I, people ask me about him if I do other podcasts or something, and I'm just like, I think, like, in my personal opinion, that is the most innovative work of poetry yeah. we've had, like, since. Yeah. Like, we, nobody's come close to being able mm -hmm. to do what he did with that. And it's just, and people, you know, there's all kinds of criticisms of it, but I'm just, just listen to it. Just read it out loud yeah. and just brilliant. Did you, have you read what um, Elizabeth Bishop said of it in a letter to Robert Lowell, which is I think that she said something like, it doesn't make any sense, but in 50 years, it's going to be the most important thing that's come out of our generation. Yeah. And I think that she had this sort of prophetic idea of like, I think what, what he's doing with syntax and again, like very high and low culture combined, I think is just still mind bending to look at. Are you a, are you a Bishop fan? Bishop took a bit longer for me. I think that I do love her. Me I too. actually think that yeah. she is amazing. I think that she's one of those poets who I find, <laughs> I did a course on her and I think I found her really, really difficult to actually write essays about because I think in some ways her poetry is so perfect and smooth. Yeah. It's almost like writing about Blake. <laughs> where I think that if I'm going to write about Lowell or someone, there's quirks that you, there's scaffolding. I felt like I was almost with Bishop climbing up a glass wall because yeah. it's so kind of considered. And I think that that's amazing, but I think can really make it almost academically difficult to have to engage with. That's a hundred percent. I agree with everything you said. Yeah. I think she's one of the best that ever lived to do it. And I'm obsessed with her and like the fish is one that I'll give students and stuff. Just, it's, oh, yeah. I think it's a perfect poem kind of like, and yeah, she's unbelievable. And then, yeah, her attitude, like her letters and stuff, just what you see. And oh my God. I think that I have her, her, all of her letters to Robert Lowell. I think I just love, I carry them around with me whenever I have like a flight or like a long train journey, just cause like one, they're so amusingly bitchy to each other, which I love because poets are secretly very bitchy people. But I think that, um, she has such a 
keen eye. Like, I think there's some, yeah, she has an incredibly keen eye. And I love her attitude. I mean, this is a more controversial thing, but I think refusing to be in women's only anthologies, I think is really interesting and something that I respect a lot. Especially at the time, yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of distancing herself from the kind of women's liberation movement, especially just in terms of her poetry as a lesbian as well, I think is so interesting. So, yeah, really fuck with her. Oh, yeah. Can I, I can swear on the podcast, Oh, yeah, right? yeah. Anything goes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no <laughs> rules. Anything goes. Any crazy idea, even, you know, we'll talk about it here. I th- that's what I want the podcast to be. Like, I want it to be, this is where, pe- I, I always say, like, when I originally started it, I wanted it to be, this is the conversation that people have after the course, you know, in grad mm. school at the bar where they say what they really think, you know, not yeah. to appease your teacher or not to just hold your tongue because you don't want to get into it with this, you know, annoying person yeah. in, the, in the cohort or whatever, but just what you really think. And I just, yeah. So yeah, anything goes. You can swear. Awesome, amazing. Crazy shit. Yeah, crazy stories. Any of that. It's Yay, all brilliant. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. And you are listening to Heavy Board. And we're recording this on January 12th, 2024. My guest today is the poet Sarah Fletcher, a writer whose attitude and command of the craft comes across in stylish and flashy ways. Her work is inventive, refreshing, interested in pushing the boundaries, the limits of the craft. Her work speaks for itself, listeners, and the ambition is on the page. She was called a poet of the future by Michael Dickman, which was my favorite of the blurbs for her debut poetry collection, Plus Ultra, which came out in the spring of 2023 from Cheerio Publishing, and of course, is linked in the description of this episode, listeners. The style is impressive. I can't seem to get away from that word. The sheer ambition that she is able to scale and mount onto the page is nothing short of impressive. There's that word again, listeners. Sarah's been compared to poets like Plath and Sexton, and there's a sheer ballsiness to the work. The confessional aspect that aims to push boundaries and lay things bare. Sarah Fletcher, is a poet who you will be hearing more of in the future, listeners, I have no doubt. One of the co-founders of the Dead Women Poets Society in 2015 and named a Foyle Young Poet of the Year in 2012, Sarah has also previously published three other pamphlets of poetry, Kissing Angles from 2015, Dead Ink Press, Typhoid August, my favorite of the titles from 2018, and Caviar from 2022 from Outspoken Press. She obtained a master's in poetry from Royal Holloway in London and is currently working on her PhD at Aberystwyth University, where she also teaches. I first came across Sarah on Twitter, of all places, where so many different factions and worlds collide together. 
she was Berryman posting, and it caught my eye, which, of course, earned a follow immediately from me, listeners, as it always does, and it made me reach out to invite her onto Heavy Board to bring her particular approach to poetry to all of you out there. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to chat. Oh my gosh, Andrew. Well, I'm so pleased that you've invited me. And I think, um, again, I think Twitter is a kind of amazing space because I think that the moment that I saw that I was messaged by Heavy Board, of course, I immediately was psyched by the Berryman reference. And the I think before I even read, like before I even clicked to see what is this podcast about, what am I agreeing to? I immediately <laughs> was just like, yes, a million percent. I want to be involved. So um, I'm obviously really, really pleased to be here today. Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. Of course, of course. As I said, I had to. I felt like I had to as soon as I saw that. I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, Berryman, we've already chatted a little bit about it in, uh, in preparing for this. Like, just how important it was. And I like that you said that you were uh, <laughs> intrigued even before you were afraid. Because I always, I, I've, there's people that I've asked, you know, to come on the podcast. And when you're doing things like this, you're always cold emailing, cold DMing. You know, you've never met anybody. And like Sarah and I have never met until now, listeners. And, and it's, you know, it, it sometimes people like be a little turned off by it. Like, you know, sometimes when anything goes on a podcast, people will be like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want to embarrass myself, but I appreciate you uh, coming up, willing to risk it for uh, <laughs> coming well, on. It's kind of interesting, because I think that thinking about, I think especially when you were kind of referencing kind of confessional things earlier, I feel like a willingness to almost be embarrassed, I think is something that actually is at the heart of quite a lot of writing. And I think that, um, I feel like if you have an attitude of being a bit too cool for school, I think that having that disclosure in which it could be brilliant, but it could also be deeply embarrassing. I think that's often where some kind of heart or energy or at least urgency enters a poem when it's actually there's, there seems to be something at stake and it could be something, I guess, less kind of intense than public humiliation. But I think that that is indeed something that often kind of plays a role. And I feel a bit like with poets, um, if we're going to take up space on a blank page, you have to have the kind of balls to want to be embarrassed a bit. You don't want to be, but I think it's something that you risk. So I think that um, I'll see how the podcast goes. Of course, everybody worries <laughs> with that anything goes approach. Um, will it be successful or not? But I think that I, I, I feel like I already have the kind of embarrassment at stake quite happily. I love that. I love that. And, and it's true. It's it's the vulnerability especially when you're doing confessional kind of aspect poetry, you know, you're not just doing very formal, you know, pretty nature poems, you know, you are opening up to the world and you're doing it in a refined way, you know, cause you're doing it through mm. poetry and stuff and then podcasting is a little different, but yeah, I think that's a hundred percent, hundred percent. It's interesting. I wonder with, um, I think, especially when we're talking about vulnerability and confessionalism, I think that's something people often get wrong about, thinking about a phrase like confessional is that I think that they really assume it's about the content itself. And I think that a lot of people, I think, conflate confessionalism with you're going to somehow be talking about the worst thing that's ever happened to you or really getting into kind of dark topics or very taboo topics or sexual topics. And I think that more so than a lot of the content, I think it is about the sort of vulnerability and what's at stake. I think, um, especially with a poet like Anne Sexton, I look at a lot of her work and I think that she doesn't really, she's not really confessing things necessarily. She's telling us things to shock us in some ways. And I think that she's kind of implicating us in an almost flirtatious relationship. But I don't think that she has this element of shame or confessionalism necessarily. She's a poet who writes about sort of 
taboo things. And I think that there's a kind of interesting distinction there between um, confessionalism almost as a sort of attitude towards the vulnerability and um, excavation versus, I guess, a sort of way in which you kind of put real life events into verse. That's incredibly interesting. I, the, in the way you said it with, with Sexton, there is this kind of almost sex appeal in the verse, but it's not quite like sexual confession, but it still mm -hmm. has this, and I, partly because she was so gorgeous and blah, 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 but it's also yeah. just, yeah. Well, I wrote this, I think my undergraduate dissertation, I think was about Sexton's use of the word you. And I think it was, I think that what I love is that I think that the you is often a lover or someone like that, but you as a reader become very implicated in the you. And I yeah. think that what she often does is that she kind of exposes herself and then is speaking to you. And I think that you almost feel like, if I don't think this is a poem, I'm somehow rejecting her sexually. <laughs> and I think that it's a really smart trick though that she does. Cause I think that there's almost this sort of weird high stakes flirtation or striptease of reveal versus not reveal versus is this true? Are you turned on by this? Maybe you shouldn't be, maybe this is horrible. And I think that it's a kind of interesting way of right. um, working with, um, yeah, reader expectations. And I think that of course, the fact that she was gorgeous in some ways allows that sort of relationship to happen. I think that um, one of my favorite stories is that I think her most famous poem is Her Kind, which I love. And I think that she used to open every reading with it and say, um, this sort of poem will tell you what type of poet I am first, and then secondly, what sort of woman I am. And then she would read it, which I think is like for most of her career. And I think that I find that um, ballsy and insane, yet not confessional. Right. That's incredible. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to get to that now. We're already going all these different places that I was like, I'm so fascinated. And I want to keep going. But I, I, did, I did want to interview and interview you and uh, showcase you here. So <laughs> uh, I always like to start this off with just kind of, a, you know, more intimate questions. Whereas what was your childhood like? And I know that's a very broad question. And uh, I always try to gear it towards, you know, to narrow it down so we're not just having a whole hour on uh, your childhood. It's just how that led you should to I, writing. Should I like lie on the couch on my back? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to like, get that okay, into it. You so don't have to be that detailed. Sex. Yeah, you could uh, as, as detailed or as vague as you want with uh, with any of this. But yeah, you're how you know you're growing up and how that led you to literature, how that led you to becoming a reader and a writer. And then eventually, you know, poetry, you know, was it always something you did? Is it something you come later in life, you know? Yeah, all those. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that um, I feel particularly lucky because I think that I've had a kind of self-identity as a writer, I think probably from a very young age. Um, a story that my mom loves to tell is that she says that when she found out she was going to have a girl, that an angel came down and kissed her on the lips and said, your daughter is going to be a famous writer. Uh -huh. So I, So I think that that was a lot of, in some ways, the kind of, and I'm really lucky that I actually love writing. I think it would have been really awkward if I happened to want to be a mathematician or something. <laughs> but um, I think that I'm pretty lucky that I think that my parents always, I think I was always loving to read. And I think I was always, I think, a bit of a professional noticer or a detail collector. And I think that that's a kind of particularly maybe writerly trait. Um, I think I remember loads, my grandma who, um, sadly has passed away was I think one of the first women to get a PhD in Alabama and so she was like hard as rocks amazing woman from the south who did a lot of cool things with civil rights activism but she gave me 
The Rubia by Omer Khayyam, the translation by Edward Fitzgerald, and a collected copy of, uh, I think, all of the collected of Anne Sexton, I think when I was about 12. And I think that those two in combination exploded my mind. And I think that, of course, um, I think that I was always writing. And I think that my mom, I'm quite lucky, we would get in kind of fights. Um, and I don't think she'd mind me saying this, because I think that when when I was a kid, I was always writing poems, and I'd just give them to her. And my mom, because she took me seriously as a writer, would be like, you know, this is a lazy line. She wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't be like, oh, wow, I have a precocious daughter who's writing these poems. It'd be, you know what, why don't we work on this metaphor? What does it actually mean to do this? And I think that I remember once, I think my dad came in while we were getting in a particularly heated editorial row. And he was like, wow, I would never want to speak to you again if like somebody had spoken about my work that way. And I had to stop and be like, no, I kind of love this. I think that this is a sign that she's giving it respect and taking right. it seriously. Yeah. So I think that um, I think I got my first poem published when I was 14 in the London magazine. Um, and I'm really pleased. I actually, this is such a shilly thing to say, but I won second place in their short story competition this year. So I think that it's exciting to still be, I guess, still in the old haunts, even um, 15 years later. But I think um, I, yeah, I think I started submitting properly when I was 17. And I think that I won a few youth competitions. Um, I always joke that um, I won the Foyle Young Poets competition and there's a quite, quite a few of us around. I almost feel like we need a group similar to AA where you can be like, I was a former, I, I was a former Foyle Young Poet. <laughs> and it's like, and, and, and for some reason I was told that I can make a living off of art when I was a kid. Right. And, now, and now we're all poor and live in London and, um, and have been like, have vague emotional issues. But um, I think that I'm pretty lucky that I think that there was always, I think I was always really interested in literature specifically. I mean, I imagine most writers, or at least a lot of my writer friends, you go through a brief teenage period where you're like, I'm gonna be a rock star instead. So I think I definitely had a stint where I was like, fuck this, I'm, I'm gonna write lyrics now. Also, I can definitely sing. Right. I cannot sing. <laughs> so I think that, um, that was quite, I think that that was a lot of the background. And I think I was lucky to have had quite supportive teachers and kind of imbibing influences, despite the fact that, of course, I was probably one of the most angsty teenagers ever because I moved around a lot. So I You're was millennial, born in, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, angst and, uh, angsty millennial it goes hand in hand, yeah. I know. And I think that um, it's funny because I think that my brother is a Zoomer. And I think that our attitudes, I think, because he was not... Of course, all teenagers have a rebellious period, but I don't think he had angst. I think angst is a very kind of specific <laughs> sort of thing to have. And I think I still actually feel like I'm an angsty adult, which <laughs> um, which I think is probably one of the less appealing things to be. But, um, <laughs> but you said you do both uh, fiction and poetry? Yeah, so I mean, gosh... I'll whinge about this eventually. I'm writing a novel, which is one of the worst fucking ideas I've ever had because <laughs> I'm, I'm 65,000 words deep. And it's like, this is, is an entirely different approach to writing. Yeah. I mean, I think that I only started writing fiction though in the past two years. I think obviously as a child, we all write stories, but I think that, um, I think there is something very specific about poetry that attracted me. And I think that even, I remember this is such a funny and almost embarrassing thing to say on a podcast. I think when I was like 11 or 10 years old, I had a really big crush on this one guy. 
shout out Chase Clemens, who will never <laughs> lose this. Um, I think he would, but he was kind of like a popular guy. Obviously, I was a bit of a weird girl. And I gave him a poem that I'd written, which was like called My Will. And it was like, if I were to die tomorrow, I'd tear out my heart, give it to you, and pray that you'd become a different person. And I gave it to him thinking it would be like a nice romantic thing. Of course, it's not a cool thing for a 10 year old to do. Right. And teachers were like, that's kind of mean. But I think that that I probably liked the concision and the um, the sort of intensity that poetry can afford you. And I think that that was probably something that I was kind of gravitating towards. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I like when writers do both, too, because I think there's something about poetry where where you said this condensed form it is it is the most difficult form in a lot of ways where you have to do so much condensing and then it's more than just condensing because you know when you're doing long form fiction you can just be writing paragraphs and paragraphs and it doesn't matter where the line ends it doesn't matter uh you know how it kind of goes full circle i mean it does in terms of plotting and other things but i yeah you know it's it's related but i always say like if you study poetry it makes you better writing at fiction, nonfiction, all these other forms of writing, because mm. poetry is this kind of highest form of kind of word art, I guess you could, if we want to call it that, yeah. you know. Well, I'm intrigued because I think I heard you say in another podcast that you're writing a novel at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, I can tell that's a distressed novelist. Oh, yes. That's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel. I think that um, it is interesting, though, to see. I think that when I first started approaching my novel, I think that I almost had to almost train myself out of quite a lot of poetic impulses that I have, which yeah. are, for example, editing a lot as I go. Or I think that my um, supervisor, who I showed some of it to, was like, Sarah, this is incredibly dense. It's so dense that I feel like I need almost line breaks to, under to take in what is happening. You know that you are allowed to kind of expand and go on a tangent and I think right. that because poetry operates so differently I think it took me a long time to actually give myself some permission to be able to sort of be like okay actually this is a form that breathes in a different way yeah absolutely and I I, I just yeah I like that and I always blame I mean I don't know why this happened but it used I, I mean I don't know if I'm just being like rose-colored glasses or what but like I always felt like it used to be much more connected where I always kind of blame like the MFA system where they say, Oh, you pick poetry mm. or fiction, you know, you can't do, but there's always some overlap where you can take courses, but you have to declare whether you're doing poetry or fiction yeah. or nonfiction and stuff, even in PhD level stuff. And you have just, I'm like, okay, so they're kind of forcing you to go one way or the other when it's like, you should be doing all of it together because it's so connected. Uh, and it makes you better, you know, a better reader, a better writer when you do it all together. But then like you I have a. Like... Sorry, oh, no, yeah, I on. just feel like writing as a species is something that is useful if we are able to kind of obviously integrate with all the taxonomies within it. I think that I find it very mad that um, there's almost a sort of hyper focus, especially where I think that I know loads of novelists who don't read any poetry at right. all or just don't know anything about poetry or the history of poetry. And I'm sure that um, we can say the same about poets who really don't actually read a lot of prose or know even just what what kind of conversations are happening within that kind of particular canon and i think that um it is a shame to just writing as a discipline to see it again in this sort of mono way especially when i think historically that's not really been how writing has worked yeah absolutely absolutely 
And you said you have an interesting history where you said you're a British American. You have dual citizenship, both continents here. With, uh, uh, tell listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think that um, I grew up in New York, Connecticut, and Illinois. And I think I, I think I was interested in writing then. But I think that when I moved to London, I was about 13. And I think that I really started writing in a more as serious as you can be as a teenager way there. Um, I think that I kind of briefly mentioned to you before, I think that it is kind of interesting in terms of influence, because I think that one, I feel quite lucky that there's a quite ripe tradition of the American moving and relocating to the UK. Um, I was going to say, obviously, the first one is T.S. Eliot. I was going to be like, and Ezra Pound, but I feel like maybe that's better to shh on at the moment. <laughs> so I, I'm not good. I'm not, not like Ezra Pound, but I think... Um, yeah, I think something that I do find intriguing is that when I, um, in terms of the kind of duality there, is that I find the poets that are read, especially in MFA courses in America, are entirely different. And there's not really a conversation between a lot of British poets and American poets at all. I think that we've had more success with poets like Dennis Smith and Kabe Akbar being published in the UK and having a lot of success. But I think that there's actually two separate kind of cultural conversations happening with poetry between the two continents. And I think I find that kind of intriguing. I think that, especially because I read both and want to sort of, obviously everybody seeks to be a bridge in some way, Um, a a bridge that they will end up burning. But I think that, (laughs) um, but I think that, um, yeah, that always specifically intrigues me how much I feel like there's a kind of lack of cultural exchange happening when I think historically there's been so much, um, similar like similarities between the two i mean i guess obviously the um elephant in the room of an american poet who moved to england is plath who i share a birthday with actually really Uh, isn't that the spookiest shit ever (laughs) i think that that's like my party fact um if i want to freak people out i think that and also dylan thomas actually it's a good birthday for writers yeah yeah i guess dead dead writers (laughs) <laughs> at least one I'm very much alive the ones that have done something yeah of course yeah well the, the ones that who you're interested I think that they're often it's kind of funny Dylan Thomas and Sylvia Plath they're kind of the writers who you read when you're 16 and you're like yes I like this yeah and I think that um, in some ways they become a bit I think that they can often become a bit passe in some circles um, there's this amazing test I took online which is is it a Dylan Thomas line or the name of a heavy metal band? <laughs> I think that some of it is like intense cacophony can kind of lend itself to that reading of it. But I think that, yeah, they're the, they're the, they're the goats. You, you, you read them when you're a teenager and are like, poetry is kind of cool. Yeah. And then you like grow up and you're like, damn, this is so not cool. This is, <laughs> this is not fun. But I think that, um, yeah. And you, uh, yeah, I always like to ask, well, what were some of the first poets, writers, even expanded beyond poets that you were enamored with or who like, you know, your kind of go to inspirations or idols in the literary world? So I think if I'm thinking back to when I was around 16, I think it's always funny. Um, there's something I read online, which is almost like your music taste really solidifies by the time you're 17. And I think that a lot of the bands that you end up really loving or the bands that you love when you're 17. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that I that's so true for me as well. But I think it, with poets as well, I think that I remember at that time imbibing a very kind of healthy diet. Of, I think actually Percy Shelley, if I'm going to name drop someone old, older, 
I think I remember reading The Wasteland in high school and the teacher started it off with, you guys are not going to understand this poem. And I just said, I, I do. Yeah. I, think that, I think that I do. I don't think it's that incomprehensible. I think that I really, really fucked with The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And I think I still go back to that. Of course, Prufrock is the teenage like right. incel love. Um, I think that I was reading a lot of that in Yates, but I think that really, I remember, I think when I got into Berryman, who I think that we both have in common, oh, yes. I think that I had the huge dream songs, the 77 and then the rest all in this one thing. And I think I lugged it across. I, I like had it almost as like a pet dog with me at all times, like on a bit of a dinky leash of like some stupid purse I had. Right. And I think that all it's just amazing for dipping in and out of. And I think that every time I opened it, I felt like it was a kind of, I don't know, like a, a portal into something quite creepy or menacing or exciting and ecstatic. I think that there's so much to be found in there. And I think that Berryman, um, as well as I think, obviously, like massive soft spot for Lowell as well. I think that th those are people who really got me into things. Um, I think also to name drop someone older, I think that when I was at university, I had a poster on my wall of the poem, They Flee For Me by Thomas Wyatt which is a like pre-renaissance like pre -renaissance poem, essentially about being an old man that girls don't want to fuck anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't really know as a like sexy 19 year old what I was manifesting with having that on my dorm wall. Um, whatever it did, it probably didn't work. But I think that I uh, feel like there is a sort of tentativeness with how he plays with meter. I think um, what I especially like to link it to Berryman as well is I think being able to know the kind of rules of prosody and then thinking, well, how can I, if I'm either like, how can I fuck this up or how can the syntax be weird? And I think that obviously poetry, you have to focus a lot on rhythm and things like that. What does it mean to have it be disjointed in this purposeful way? Or what does it mean then to kind of slice a perfect iambic line in the middle of that? I think that that sort of control was something that I think I was always interested in, especially with my early influences. That is fantastic. Yeah. And I love the way you put it with this kind of the control and then this kind of like the, the, the subversion of the expect of the expectation and stuff, the way writers like Berryman would do that with the dream songs and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and even Lowell. Yeah. I mean, Lowell is such a towering figure in poetry. And I, I know if you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored uninterrupted full access to this podcast become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you for less than one cup of coffee per month you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. American mostly, but I mean, just, uh, just what a figure. And when you read that stuff, like it is so complex like especially i mean the confessional stuff is less complex than his earlier stuff you mm. know i'm thinking of what well like the... i think lord weary's castle is really underrated i think right. his early stuff like slaps and i think also, like is really really good and it's it's people they don't because it takes more work to appreciate lowell's early stuff than it does the confessional stuff with his later you know 
life studies in the 60s there but it's like people are like oh that's too difficult but it's like that is masterful you know there's a reason that he's a towering figure in in literature at all both continents yeah the british and american kind of scene it's just because i mean who is going to put that much work into it anymore who's putting yeah. that much work into that kind of rhyme scheme for that long you know it's... you'd love that there's this letter and i'm sorry i think no, no, no. i'm the worst for interrupting and no, i think no, no, that no, I, I know i know it's i think especially um on a podcast i feel like it's one of um i think the zoom era was very hard for me emotionally because i used <laughs> to get excited but um i think that you'd love this which is that there's a hilarious letter that um robert lowell writes john berryman when they before they'd met in person and he says we have so many things in common i am dot 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 wife dot 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 wives question mark <laughs> and i think that there's this sort of um yeah i'm using i think metrical bravado that <laughs> manifests probably in their marriages as well hopefully who knows but i think that um that i find really intriguing i think especially with a lot of early lowell i think that there is because uh, i think that lowell is someone who i think i actually have the biggest soft spot for i think especially um I mean, his early stuff is amazing. That poem, The Dolphin, though, where it's like my eyes have seen what my hands have done, that like fucks me up. And it's such like when I read that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just love that. And I think that he has this sort of. I think that he's able to get away with a lot of the stuff in life studies because he's been so learned. And again, from this kind of Boston Brahmin background right. and has like really been able to sort of like imbibe the classics and like obviously he he has the Ovid translations and things like that. There's so much that's going into it that I think makes it interesting. And I think that we kind of forget that a lot of that was required for him to be able to write something like Life Studies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like because he was doing it so long too. But you talked about music too. And you said even in your teen years, you had kind of a period where like, you kind of went away from writing and then it was more music and like trying to be in bands and sing and write lyrics. And was music a big part of bringing you back into poetry? Cause I like hearing that with writers. Cause it was for me, like music was the gateway into and lyrics and stuff was the gateway to serious poetry study and like engagement when I was in my late teens, early twenties into college. And I was just curious if you had any of that or. Did you, were you a big Bob Dylan fan? Uh, I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. No, no neither but, am I. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm intrigued. I want to kind of, I guess I'm intrigued by who were the... Um, I'm a millennial. Who... So emo <laughs> music was big, emo, oh, emo yeah. lyrics. And I know that's not the best poetry if we're going to try well, and make I the comparison. I think Fall Out but... Boy was the first concert I saw. So Which one? I'm, Sorry. I saw Fall Out Boy. Oh, okay. I know that Perfect. Not yeah. emo. I, I, I like a lot of old school emo, like Rites of Spring. And I guess Fugazi aren't quite emo, but things like that, I think that I fucked quite heavily with. So. Yeah, love Fugazi. <laughs> and then for, yeah, it was always like Taking Back Sunday was big. That was a very big <laughs> one. And then even when I was younger, I mean, things like Green Day, something like that, where, where people, I mean, they didn't, they weren't, they're not as good now, but I mean, their heyday in the 90s, and I was too young to be listening to them when they were releasing things like Dookie, you know, to the public. Mm -hmm. I didn't listen until years later, but those lyrics are great. And then when I got more serious about that, I got into like indie rock and like Modest yeah. Mouse is one of my favorites nice. in terms of lyrics. And I know, you know, he always loved Isaac Brock, loved the Silver Jews. He loved these kind of the, the songwriters that like and like Dylan, like I've never I'm not a huge Dylan fan, but I can respect, you know, why yeah. he's so big and why. 
you know, some of those lyrics are fantastic. Uh, very yeah, good. I, well, with Dylan, I brought it up as well because Adrian Rich has this essay where she says that the only two writers who seem to be working in Americanese are Bob Dylan and John Berryman, <laughs> which I think is, I think that that's something though that I still find a bit of a baffling thing to have said that I think that I often ask, I mean, the few writer friends that I still kind of actively surround myself with. I'm like, but what do we think she meant by that? Right. What like does it have to do with the phrasing? Does it have to do with the weird metaphor? What's happening? What do you but, what do you uh, think she uh she meant by that? Uh, if you had to know. guess, you know, we don't need definitive so if answers. I, had to guess, yeah. I mean I think I'd probably say somewhere I think that something that is amazing about Berryman is this kind of strange scissors and line breaks and syntactical splicing. And I think that often when I listen to Dylan, it takes a while for a whole phrase to complete. I'm not a huge Dylan fan, yes. to be honest. Um, I think also they might maybe in some ways have similar kind of ways in which they're kind of working with the kind of mythic whilst combining it with the kind of mundane Americanism. And I think, again, not shying away from slang, from the blues tradition, especially with Berryman as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so to, to veer randomly back, which is, I guess, a bit of a thing to the music thing, is that I think that that's something I think that embarrassingly enough, because I think that well, I shouldn't be embarrassed by it, but I was a huge Nirvana fan as a kid. Yes. I think oh, yeah. that, that Kurt, Kurt Cobain, very important. I know. But then more controversially, I got really into Hole and Courtney Love. So I think that that I think was something that I think Hole and I think Tori Amos as well. I think that they are people who I think lyrically, I don't think I'm necessarily under that influence, but I think that it was a sort of sound that was angry or kind of a, a, abrasive oh, yes. but that I think that I was like, how could I do that with words? Yeah. I think that I was more ca interested in almost capturing the vibe and that made me intrigued more so than I'm focusing on the lyrics. It was listening to that and being like, I don't know if I've read something that has given me this feeling. And so right. I want to try to read something that's going to give me this feeling. And how could I write something that can somehow capture a feeling of abjection and anger, but also with self-hatred and vulnerability? There's quite a lot going on there with Nirvana as well. And so I think that that kind of massively brought me back. And the lyrics, the Kurt Cobain lyrics, I'm not going to say that they're poetry, right? But I'm just going to, I just, they're so like the lithium. Like when I first yeah, started getting into that, song. that lyric to lithium is like, they're so good. I mean, not just the music quality too, where I said Nirvana is the only band that could have an entire chorus of just the word. Yeah. Over and over yeah. again. But like, well, also that... when we were talking about embarrassment earlier, I think that the line in lithium where it's like, I'm so horny. Right? And I think that that's something that's a kind of throwaway line, but I think that that's something where it's like, if you're trying to write a cool dude rock song, right. you don't put that line in. This is something that's actually kind of vulnerable or on the edge a bit because like nobody really wants to go around being like, I'm so horny, that's right. okay. I've shaved my head or like, and so are you. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So I think that that kind of separates it in terms of vulnerability from a lot of the cock rock stuff that happens at the time. Absolutely. And like that was new too. Like where it was just off of like kind of the, the hair metal of the eighties with the makeup and the kind of big hairspray and, and five minute guitar solos. And then Nirvana comes out of Seattle yeah. with this kind of, yeah, I'm so ugly, but that's okay. Cause so are you, you know, and yeah. we broke our mirrors that, that, yeah, I'm so horny, but that's okay. My will is good. Like, yeah, the drums. It. Do, 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 do. Like, it just, yeah. I think also kind of royalty is, I think, yes. <laughs> such a good, like, lyrical triumph. Where Absolutely. I think that, like, 
I think, and I love the kind of nod to the lyrical king, I guess, Leonard Cohen in it, which is like, give me a Leonard Cohen afterworld so I can sigh eternally. I think there's something, again, an amusing homage, which is like, this is a kind of quite self-loathing song in which he's talking about having to take like medicine for his stomach pain, like on cherry and acids, while somehow kind of putting himself in conversation with one of the kings of writing kind of romantic song lyrics in some ways. And I think that that's something that I think um, I really liked a lot as a vibe. And I think that I think that I wanted kind of how can poetry then be operating in that similar sort of way? Yeah, I think that rebellion in poetry, I think that a lot of people who are seen as kind of rebellious, you either end up with sort of, I don't know, like this sort of like poets who... Damn. See, I'm already into the podcast and I don't want to say things that will get me in trouble. No, but I think that like the like I think there's like the sort of poets who just like to almost like word art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one way of rebelling. And I think that we've almost had these kind of dual ways of rebelling, which is either I'm going to see how dark I can get it. And I'm going to confess things that are so autobiograph- autobiographical or I'm going to almost do this sort of no- like nonsense word art. And I think that those are both things that for me felt personally unsatisfactory at kind of capturing the urgency or interest of especially a lot of the music that made me think like, wow, this is making me feel something, but it's also making me think a lot too. There's this T.S. Eliot quote where he says, great poetry can communicate before it's understood. And I think I really had that as a sort of compass through most of my writing where I want to be able to communicate something and then you can go back and understand it in maybe some kind of intellectual way. But I feel like there's either too much communicating or too much understanding going on. Yeah. And I think that more synthesis happening. That's a very interesting way to think about it. And it's making, I didn't prepare for this, but I'm thinking of it now with this kind of, you know, there is, there's kind of something wrapped up. And I think Plath, Sexton, I'd throw Ginsburg in yeah. there. I'd throw some of the, oh, yeah. the early, the poets that people get into when they're first getting in to poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, Frank O'Hare, I like to throw in there as well. And then you, there's kind of oh, wrapped yeah. up in these lyricists too, with Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, uh, Jim For Morrison. Sure. At that time period. I love, I love the Doors. I love the Doors. I know, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a fan of his poetry, but yeah, I love the, no, I like the Doors so as well. No, yeah. like, uh, <laughs> when, right. when I was like 12 years old, I think that all the girls had like, posters of Justin Bieber on their locker. And I had like dead Jim Morrison with the shirt list. And that was like who, when I was 12, I was like, yeah, I like him. Oh, yeah. That's like, I'm like, I don't like Justin Bieber. I like this random drug addicted man. But I think you just, you put your finger on it. My life as an adult. So, yeah. What? Exa- and I think, but you put your pick, you, I think you put your finger on it where you said with this, those, the, the thing that all of those, artists kind of have in common and why they kind of circle around this poetry thing is because it says that you that like that Elliot quote where it, it implies meaning and even some of these lyrics Nirvana and stuff yeah. imply meaning before you understand them like you know people always give him sh- you know Nirvana shit for like smells like teen spirit the lyrics are kind of nonsense mm. in a lot of ways yeah. but then it's also it conveys that feeling without you having to understand the chorus it's just the shouting you know a mosquito my libido you know yeah like this kind of rhyming and giving you that feeling without making sense and there is that kind of maybe that's why when we're just getting into poetry and things before we take it you know to the academic levels where we're getting masters and phds we're we're enamored with these artists that are like you said trying to do poetry in a way that's like rock stars like kind of yeah i had a friend when uh we were we were younger and you know in college undergrad doing getting into poetry took workshops together and she would always say this question to me she was like how do you poetry like Banksy 
Like that's what she would say. We're like, make a statement and make people see it, you know, make people <laughs> see it yeah. and kind of be loud, kind of that rock music style. And I don't mm. know, you know, I, everybody has their feelings on Banksy or whatever, but just that time when he was, when I was an undergrad, you know, he was blowing up, like yeah. exit through the gift shop was huge. Uh, everybody wanted Banksy stuff. Uh, he was, you know, the biggest artist in the world at the time. And, uh, you know, it was cool. It was cool. I know we look, some of yeah. people are like, oh, it's cheesy now. And some of it is, but like it, a lot of it still holds up. Like a lot of it is cool. And it was very simple. It was very yeah. stripped. It was, I yeah, I don't know where we, I'm going with that, but yeah. No, it's, it's funny because Banksy, I think is an interesting person to bring up because that I, um, wait, so this is an incredibly rude question to ask. How old are you? Uh, I'm 34. You're 34. I'm 29. So I think that I thought Banksy, I think, was a bit passe. But I actually lived in Bristol, where Banksy is from. Right. And I think there's loads of original Banksy's around Bristol. And I think that he's really part of the Bristol environment. So when I was briefly living there, it really gave me a kind of renewed sense, actually, of like, you know what? I'm not too cool for school for this. I actually right. think a lot of this is actually kind of sick. And I think that um, I'm not going to, it's almost in the same way that like, I've really had a renaissance with my appreciation of Allen Ginsberg, where I'm like, no, maybe these things that we liked as teens are actually good. Yeah. Sorry. So I think um, I can see that. I do wonder who the poetry equivalent to Banksy would be. Yeah, I don't know if there is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know well, if there is I one. Wonder, yeah. yeah, I wonder, um, do you know Harold Pinter at all? I think that the, the writer, playwright. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. That, yeah, but he wrote this horrible poem, I think, for some kind of like public event for the crown that was just making really liberal use of swear words. Um, and I wonder if that could be it. I don't even know enough about it for it to be an interesting story. But I guess it's something that I also was thinking about in terms of how thinking about Nirvana and thinking about these bands, which is that a lot of the things don't make sense, but it's how they say them. Yeah. And I think it reminded me a bit of, do you know, what? what is one of the Berryman poems where it says like, it's doing a blues stanza or something where it's like, I've been so lonely, haven't seen my son or something like that. And I think yes. he's really working. It's very simple, but I think for me, it's one of the saddest poems that he's written. And I think that again, it's because it's not necessarily the content, what he's saying, but I think that it's the intonations where I think that again, yeah. that's what kind of makes it powerful. And I think you do this great in your work too. Like this is what I was drawn to where, where, where you are the short, short one word sentences, one word sentences, and they, they work, they rhyme even, and then a long sentence that is extending yeah. the, the, the line off the page, you know? And, and that putting them together does create like an urgency, like, like a kind of mm. re, almost rock music. I don't, you know, we don't want to go that far with it, but yeah, like I, I really- don't go that far with yeah. it, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think actually it's interesting. I'd like to ask, what do you think about Frederick Seidel? Never, never read, never heard. Oh, my God. No. So Frederick Seidel, I think he's an American poet. Funnily enough, I have a copy of his book over there. He is sort of, he won a poetry competition for a collection that Robert Lowell judged, I think, in the late 60s. And the title of the collection was Final Solution. What a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a dickhead. But I think that what I kind of, he has this almost very vulgar, clunky, like, line breaks where I think that he has this almost hackneyed rhyme. So I think that what he often does is like, there's this great poem of his called Cunnilingus, which has a phrase like, my face is falling off my face, which I love. <laughs> but I think he has a lot of things that are really willfully offensive, like um, a woman my age, like a, a naked woman my age is a nightmare. And I think that he actually, 
he plays into though being a massively rich dickhead right. with this most hackneyed end line. And I think that when we were thinking about what is kind of rebellious to say in the context of contemporary poetry, I think him actually being like, yeah, I'm a gross old man who fucks young women and like lives in a like penthouse in Manhattan and <laughs> has like studied so much and like I'm just gonna have these almost offensively simple rhymes. Yeah. I think that that I almost feel like is kind of there's something. I mean. I don't want to be a dickhead and say a word like punk, but I think that there's something that has that sort of aggressive, like I feel like it's like yeah. three chords, angry, yes. doing something like that. And I think that because of that, I actually really like it, even though I imagine um, obviously the feminists don't like him. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I think punk, are you a punk fan at all? Like, Oh, a huge punk fan. That was very I mean, important to me as a kid. Yeah. Like, and it, there was kind of a punk revival when we were growing up as millennials too, I guess in America yeah. and the UK. Where you have yeah. like kind of the original punk UK bands, you know, like mm. with the, the Clash, you know, like the the Sex yeah. Pistols, uh, the, the Buzzcocks weren't they British or were they? Oh my God, American? the Buzzcocks are so British. Yeah. Love the Buzzcocks. I think that is funny actually because I think that the first punk band though that I really got into, which is again, I feel like was the Ramones, but I think that they're almost like early Beatles with Distortion. Like I yeah. feel like I could see the Ramones doing "I Want to Hold Your Hand." with distortion. And I think there's actually something so almost earnest about the Ramones, because they're not edgy in the way that some of the other ones are yeah, necessarily yeah. in terms of their song structures or even lyrical content. But or I even think the that, Sex uh, Pistols were like super fucking edgy. Just the shows, like the mm, cutting themselves on stage. You know like what? The... What I hate actually is that I think that a lot of punk fans love to kind of peacock by being like, you know what? The Sex Pistols kind of suck. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what? I like the Sex Pistols. Yeah. I think the Sex Pistols are good. I think Submission and Pretty Vacant, those are great tunes. I, I like those. I think that I'm not too cool for the Sex Pistols. Yeah. I don't care that they were made to sell clothes. Sid Vicious did literally die, guys. Like, yeah. They have, they have cred. God Save the Queen. Like, people are like, oh, it's their biggest song. I'm like, it's fucking great. Have you listened yeah, to that song? Exactly. Like, <laughs> I think especially with the monarchy at the time and kind of Thatcherite Britain, I think that that was a cool thing to have done. But no, I think I really fucked with them. I think I got really into, do you like any post-punk stuff like Gang of Four or like, I think that, or even like Talking Heads, like New Wave oh, yes. stuff. I oh, think yeah. that I got really into, I think actually Stop Making Sense is an ethos I quite like in terms of a kind of poetic yeah. thing because I think that obviously, I think there's this kind of again i think that it ties back to things that we've been saying about expression and wanting to, for things to be again communicated before they're understood so yeah. i think that a lot of that stuff i really fucked with yeah and that was I, that was a huge deal like i you know it was it was at that time so when we were growing up you go into walmart you know i know this is basically american i guess but like you go into walmart they were selling sex pistols t-shirts they were selling like yeah. George kennedy's t-shirts they were selling ramones t-shirts at yeah. walmart it was like this huge revival that was happening and all these teenagers that were like you know i was like 13 14 yeah. getting into this and and listening to all these records from the 70s and 80s and 90s and then this like yeah, I, I think that's a huge influence over our entire generation. Like, you know, yeah. like just. It's kind of interesting because I think that you kind of mentioned the word emo earlier. I love talking emo. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I think that when I was in school, I've never actually, I think that because I was more into grunge, I think that like. Poor, like, I have to say, bless my parents. I made them listen to so much bad music from when I was a teenager. But I think because I was really fucking with Hole then, and I still love Hole. Yeah. I think that I was like, 
I'm not emo. I'm a kinder whore. And like not knowing that the entire like premise of that style is that you're supposed to be an adult woman dressing like a kind of little girl. If you're actually 14, it like looks probably kind of perverted and not great. But I think that I remember I kind of had beef with some of the emos because I felt like the emos, I was like, they're like pansy, you know right? Little pansy. I, well, I was like the popular kids think I'm like you. Like I was really into, you know, swans. Mm-hmm. So they're like, like really horrible to listen to. I don't even recommend them. <laughs> but it's like one of those things where I'm like, you think that's heavy? Do you want to listen to just like dissonant noise of a man? Like, do you know suicide? They're kind of similar to suicide, like dissonant noise of a man having a breakdown. And I'm like, this is what I like. You guys are just emo kids. Like, oh, what? You straighten your hair? And then I was right. like, well, I actually do have no friends now, except for like my English teachers. But yeah. I think that um, it was kind of interesting because I think that emo i've always said i guess maybe hipster after that is one of the last real subcultures when i teach my students now because i teach undergraduates something that i think is really interesting is that i feel like they don't seem to have a sort of style or a band or things like that or just even a vibe that they organize themselves around there's almost a kind of of course, if I'm teaching creative writing, it's almost like a kind of potpourri of weirdos, which I think, um, again, is wonderful in its own way. But I think that I was quite lucky that I think I, during our generation, I think that we were able to kind of have a bit of a subculture to tune into. Or I felt like there was yeah. something where I'm like, OK, I might not be cool in school, but there is something else outside of there that I'm kind of tuning into that I'm really appreciating. That's... And I think that a lot of that has kind of been lost now. Of course. Yeah, I think you're 100% correct. And I, you know, I don't like to blame like Gen Z and the younger generations. I think a lot of it wasn't their fault. A lot of it was like social media kind of destroyed yeah. cultural subcultures, or they made them so fractured and niche that they're hard to find, you know? Yeah. I uh, mean, this, but yeah, this is me being, I think that I can say this. I mean, that I find really interesting is that I've had a really distinct relationship between, I think that I taught kids who were about 16, 17 during the pandemic. Right they were generally pretty well adjusted and they were okay. And I think that that was a good teaching experience. I think that when I taught kids who were 14, 15 during the pandemic, and those are the top angst years, I think I noticed in class a kind of like definitely noticeable difference between their like uh, ability to stay focused. And I think that being on their phones and I think that it's kind of interesting because I think that I went to one student and I was like, are you taking notes on your phone? And she was like, no, but this is how I need to listen. Right. And I think that, but I think that the thing is that I don't think that <laughs> she was trying to like, I don't think that she was taking the piss. I think that she was right. I think that she probably did need that extra stimulation to be able to listen to what I was saying. I don't think that it was her fault. I think that there's been this kind of reward culture in which like almost you kind of need this I don't know, so many different kind of channels of media happening at the same time to be able to kind of process things. And I think that that's intriguing and sinister to me in equal measure. I think that we're probably the last generation that remembers life before the internet. Yes, yes. And I think that people dismiss that as a very important marker in not just culturally, but how everything kind of functions now too, how even Mm -hmm. higher ed and classrooms function now. It's around this social media, you know, when you're especially with teaching, I teach at a community college here and it's it's when you're you're especially during that online time during the pandemic yeah. where, where it everything changed in terms of everything was social media. So even like those kind of canvas or at least the ones we use in the US are like canvas yeah. or like Blackboard or like these. Yeah, kind of I use Canvas things. and Blackboard. <laughs> 
like those are like they're like becoming social media they're becoming news feeds where you scroll mm -hmm. and you can see all the you know like yeah. it's very interesting how that's changing everything and people are like dismissing it because we're too close to it maybe to like analyze it as like this is a big shift not just culturally mm -hmm. but like how we used to do things uh and it it's it's affecting things, even affecting the art, even if however minor, yeah. uh, how we create, how we publish, how we, you know, do all of these things, how we podcast and we, we can yeah. chat, like you can chat with you over in London while I'm over here, you know, in the U S and we can have these kind of connections that, which is the great thing about it. But then there's like the negative side too. Yeah, where everything's... Well, it's, it's so interesting. Cause I think that one, I think that obviously like, something so I was talking to a friend recently because I'm writing this stupid novel but I was saying that for me to be able to write I really actually have to do it freehand I can't write on a screen I love that and so my friend was saying so you're telling me that you've written this entire novel down in different bits and you type it up that seems time consuming and I said yes that's exactly what I'm doing right. I actually how I interact with the screen at the moment I see it as work or doom scrolling yes I think that the ability to be creative like on a screen, I think is incredibly different for me. And I think that generally, um, I think that especially because when I go through a writing process, I think that, I don't know how poems start for you, but I think that for me, I think that I generally write, I think that they don't happen linearly. So I think that I usually write something in the center of a page. And then I think that I start to kind of have different things offshooting from that and expand on those. And then at some point I know what order to put them in. And yep. I think it's a very weird process, but it's not a process that I can replicate on just text edit yeah. or notes. And I think that it's kind of intriguing the kind of, yeah, ramifications that this has for creativity, because right. I think that it is kind of crazy. 100%. And I love that you, you say that and that's your routine and that's your kind of process. I love that you do it away from the screen, particularly when you're doing long form writing. Like for mm. me, especially experimenting with fiction, you know, I would always do poetry, handwritten. First drafts are always yeah. handwritten in my, my, that's just the way I like to do it. But then, you know, you know, sometimes I'll do that with fiction too, but it's just easier to do it on the screen right away. Cause you're just doing yeah. so many lines. If you're doing a couple pages a day or whatever, mm. But then I like that you're refusing to, or even as you said, not even just like, a, not even that deep. Like, it's not like you're like, oh, I'm not doing this. It's just a matter of this yeah. is what works for you. And sometimes you find that screen to create a barrier between your ideas and yeah. the expression. I think that's so important. And that's something that I think a lot of writers and artists, some are grappling with it now, but I think in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be even more people trying to grapple with this kind of, you know, this addiction to screens and this constant everything's on screens all your work is on screens everything mm -hmm. when you're doing the kind of knowledge jobs like it's yeah well i think that it. i saw i saw some meme like earlier a few days ago that was like so i was at work and i looked at this one screen but then i had some breaks where i looked at my small screen right. and then i went home and i looked at the good screen right and i think that like i think obviously i think that it's so obvious to be like oh screen's bad but I do think that in some ways it is a kind of excess of stimulation. I think that's something that I've started to do. Um, well, I think I started doing this a few years ago. It's that I think that I started to really try to get into classical music because I think I really wanted to train myself to listen to something with no distractions and be able to kind of appreciate something that is long form in its own way without getting kind of bored. Because I think that obviously I listened to like my own music, but I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start to listen to a 10 minute prelude for something. And I just want to actually see what that experience is like. And it's almost kind of like going to the gym in terms of getting endurance for something. And yeah. I think that what I really disliked is 
I've done that with music. I think that I find it frustrating with often even reading novels where I'm like, I really want to be able to savor something like that and not have that kind of distraction. Like, I think that I've been reading, do you know The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann? Oh, yes. Uh... Oh, my God. Amazing. But I think that that's a heavy book. Oh, yeah. And I think that when I first kind of started approaching it, I was almost like, I want to get to the end. And I think that I've almost tried to kind of cognitively work with myself. So I'm actually just really enjoying the process of reading. I mean, I think actually this ties a lot with what we've been saying about poetry, where I think that a lot of poetry, I think is important because I think that it really forces you to focus on the process of reading and the attention itself is something that you have to give to it. I think like something with a lot of my students, I think that they'll be like, well, what was this poem about or what was it the point? And I feel like those again are often the wrong question. I think that I think that what's supposed to happen is that it's not if, if you could do it too long, didn't read, you shouldn't write the fucking poem. Right. The poem itself is a process. Like I think especially if we're thinking about like sonnet, the Volta, you are going through a kind of cognitive and emotional process with the writer that I think is something that requires attention and a kind of emphasis on reading and line break in itself that I find interesting to focus on. And I think that that makes it different. Like, I think I read something online that said, at the moment in history, we're probably reading more than anybody in the world has done in terms of just looking at things on a screen, right. reading a menu, reading stop signs. I'm looking around my room and I can read 20 different things if I wanted to that are just like they're strewn about. And I think that actually forced like what poetry can do, which I think is really amazing, is that it really forces you to kind of think about what is actually happening when I'm making this strange visual connection between my myself and the screen or myself and the book. And I think that that sort of attention that it requires, I think makes it a kind of more prescient art form than we might imagine. Yeah, and how intentional, right? The intentionality, for lack of a better word, like, like poets or poetry is the intentions of each of these words in this specific order to create that kind of mm. reaction or feeling. And so much of what we're reading all the time, like you said, we're surrounded by it, is so unintentional. Like it's just mm -hmm. people firing off tweets, or it's people yeah. putting up a passive-aggressive sign in the, you know, in a hallway or whatever. And you're like, it's it's less that this intentionality. Whereas, yeah, anybody can do this, but you have to kind of the intention is what makes it almost more of an art form, like mm. the intentional arrangement. I don't know where I'm going yeah. with that, but yeah. no, I agree. <laughs> I think it's kind of it's kind of funny. I mean, if you're hearing this. It's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content subscribers only ama episodes bonus extended interviews and more come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board so i don't know where i'm going with all of this i'm spitballing as well no, i think it's yeah. kind of interesting i think that um I think that somebody, I think that I was speaking about somebody about like love languages, which is one of those stupid things where I think that apparently love languages was actually conceived by like a massive Christian evangelical in like a <laughs> pro-Christian sort of thing. Um, but I think that they were saying that now actually attention 
which is actually not really a love language, but intentionality should be almost something that's added. And I think that the idea with poetry that I think that you're going to kind of gift it a very specific attention, I think is a kind of act of love as a reader and something that you hope somebody will do as a writer. I think that um, I feel like there's quite a lot of lazy verse that I think rewards not being able to pay attention to it. And right. I think the kind of idea of like, again, it's communicating something. Like, I think that, um, I think this is a struggle often with political verse, but I think that this happens with a lot of things where I think that I often wonder why did this have to be a poem? I ask this a lot to my right. students where I say, so you're choosing to write this as a poem. That's great. I love poems. Right. But I think that what what is it that makes poetry uniquely special to kind of communicate what you want to do with it because i feel like why why are you like you should ask yourself why is this not a story right. or why is this not a diary entry or why is this not even a tweet right i think that you should really kind of be intentional about poetry itself being the kind of most useful form for this to take and i think that um something that really influenced my poetry i think the most was i think that i was in a room i think that how old was i i was like 21 i think i just moved to london I think that my parents won't listen to the podcast, so I can probably say things. <laughs> so I think that I was like, I was kind of like hanging out with this, like these two other older poets, and I was on speed. And I think that they said something that really hurt my feelings, which was that they said, um, Sarah, I think that your poetry expresses something, but I think that our poetry creates new thoughts and does philosophy. Mm. And at that time, I was like, fuck you guys. Right. That's the like, that was so wounding. And I think that since then, I think that I've had a kind of, underdog obsession with the idea that of course the point of poetry in some ways is to kind of have an element of expression but also I think even with plus ultra as a title which is Latin for further beyond I want there to be like well actually you can think in different ways yes. I think that that's what's exciting about it like when I read some Berryman poems I'm like I've never thought about this in a specific way and it actually is genuinely something that's challenging and I think that that's something that I feel like poetry is very uniquely suited to do especially because philosophers are awful at communicating their ideas most of the time that we say that they're hard it's because they're bad writers right yeah and it gets kind of convoluted and there's all these exceptions they have to kind of go over and then yeah what poetry yeah. lets you kind of make the idea cleaner i yeah, don't know if that's like, the right like, word like yeah. a good example of this is do you fuck with wallace stevens at all yeah yeah yeah. i think wallace stevens is a really good example of it because i think that wallace stevens i used to find quite cold and difficult in he some is, ways he's a little cold that, yeah i think that when i started seeing him as an erotic poet i think that i like my imagination opened up to him and i think that in some ways he is very sensual and yeah. i think that um there's something that i read which i think that He's one of the modernists who, one, didn't go to the UK. Did you know that he once punched Hemingway in the chest? No. <laughs> That's like my favorite story is that they were in Florida and he punched Hemingway in the chest, which I think makes him a Chad in general. <laughs> but I think that he was one of the modernists who didn't go to the UK. And I think he was one of the modernists who um, was an atheist and didn't believe in God, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And I think that because obviously um, the rest went through their own batshit conversions. Yates. Which I have sympathy to. So, oh, yeah. I love. You know what, Yates? I always say is the incel laureate. <laughs> I think that. Like, I, I love I, that. Actually, yeah. I fucking love Yates. I act well. You know the. You started um, your book with I, it, yeah. Yeah, I think you know. Um, so the line, the tragedy of, um, what is it? The tragedy of sexual intercourse is the perpetual virginity of the soul. There is a funny story there, which is I think that he was in love with 
Maude gone, obviously. And I think that they, he'd been in love with her for 20 years and they finally consummated. And I think that he almost had like erectile dysfunction. He was drunk right. in a hotel in Paris and it wasn't great. And he said that to someone at the pub. But I remember I've always been obsessed with that line. And I think that I was tweeting it once. And my boyfriend at the time said, Sarah, I'd really appreciate it if you stopped tweeting that. <laughs> like, it's, it's not making me look great. <laughs> like, can you tweet? Like, I, I know that, like, it's not about me. But I think the fact that you seem to really be connecting with this is making me seem a bit impotent to everyone else. <laughs> so. Absolutely. I always say that that is... It's, it's an understudied reason, especially for some of those older Hemingway and stuff, like in the, the erectile dysfunction years for, for, for oh, adult yeah. men is under under underused in terms of like explaining that, <laughs> that can make a man very angry. That can make a man very depressed <laughs> and want to put a shotgun in his mouth. Like, yeah. I mean, okay. Like... Well, I think with Hemingway, I think it's crazy that like, the sun also rises. It's literally explicitly about a man whose dick does not work. Right. I think that like, I think it's kind of, and also I think that, I mean, the more progressive reading of it, but I think that there's, I still have time for it. It's the idea that, you know, he's in love with this woman named Brett who has short hair and is very sexually aggressive whilst he has a dick that doesn't work. I right. mean, in some ways there's obviously some kind of queer reading you can probably put on that where she's acting as a kind of masculine figure. But yeah, I think that, you know, Berryman and Lowell, if they were all alcoholics, we know what that does. So right, yeah. I think that like um, looking at like look at, looking at the dream songs through the um, lens of whiskey dick. Right. I think is, Stuffing uh, yourself with chicken paprika. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, I was like, thinking about that poem. How a few horny days ago. some of those are, like how horny some of those dream songs are. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that amazing line, which is she might as well be on Mars, which yeah. I love. I that I was because I was reading that poem earlier because um, I fancy someone at the moment. And I think that I um, I'm in the midst of I feel like I was relating to that poem, actually, in the sense that there's a line of there ought to be a law against you. And it's like, what is it? Mr. Bones, there is. Yeah. And I think that there's a sort of weird element of shame around your own desire, yes. which is where it's like there is um, actually. So I know that I'm going off on tangents, no, no, but no. I'm having fun. So this yeah. is why, which is, do you know the song Ballad of a Thin Man by Bob Dylan? No, not as. So that one is like, okay. I think that, again, I'm not a big Bob Dylan fan. I'm convinced that it's inspired by Dream Song 4. And I think that it's because it's called, so the, 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 the chorus has Mr. Jones in it. And I think that I think it's a kind of version of Mr. Bones because there's literally a line that says there ought to be a law against you coming around. And it's this kind of desire thing. Right. And I, I've been trying to, there's that connection. I've also been wanting to really write something about, you know, the fact that Lou Reed was really good friends with Delmore Schwartz, who was taught by John Berryman. Right. So I'm really trying to make some kind of tenuous Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, John Berryman connection. Did John Berryman ever listen to the Velvet Underground? Maybe. And if so, what impact did that have on the Velvet Underground? I'm so keen to kind of make that happen. And you know, they were all like Dylan was reading all that poetry. Like Dylan was reading that stuff, yeah. especially by the 70s when he was very much established when dream songs and stuff were. I mean, there's a reading that I know because I think that he definitely would have known Allen Ginsberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Allen Ginsberg hilariously has a song with Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen called Don't Go Home With Your Heart On, which is <laughs> actually very, again, 
works with the virility aspect where it's like, don't go home with your heart on. It'll only drive you insane. Um, but I think that I know Allen Ginsberg did a reading with Robert Lowell and John Berryman. I mean, who knows who went to that in New York? But I think that um, Allen Ginsberg opened it with saying that skunk hour, he said, oh, wait, so you're just saying that, like, you're feeling bad about being a pervert. You've been like looking at like you've been looking at these teenagers in cars and like what right. like oh no you feel sad now you're a pervert you should feel worse, um, but I think that um, yeah that that entire scene was kind of like I think that is also interesting I think that there's much more of a kind of interdisciplinary conversation yeah. happening at that time between music and painting like something I loved is a lot of the poems in Plus Ultra were in Madrid and I think that I used to live in Madrid I lived in Madrid for about seven months or eight months and I think that when I was there I met like I think I moved there with my poet ex-boyfriend but we knew a lot of painters and musicians and I really felt like there was actually a genuine cross-cultural connection happening at the time meanwhile in London I don't know any painters how would I meet right. them I don't even know any playwrights like I think that there's so much segmentation that I yeah. think is generally quite unhealthy for the kind of ecosystem of the arts yeah absolutely but especially I, I in those like cities I'm... like New York and London like these big Madrid like these big kind of historically Paris these cities where there were this historically blending of these different art forms and the art culture of the city and you could go to these plays and you'd run into these painters and poets and, and, and or whatever you go to the theater and, and you'd see all these people or you go to a bar and they'd all be hanging yeah. out and yeah there's less of that overall maybe and I, I don't want to be like oh that's a definitive thing or whatever but it does feel that way like you said even looking yeah. for it it's harder to find I think a lot of it so there's two things one I feel bad because I feel like I'm actually so invigorated by the conversation. I feel like I'm talking faster than Camille no, Pelia. No, no, please. Because <laughs> um, I'm enjoying it. But I think that there's two things, which is one, I just want to say one of my favorite literary anecdotes, which I think you'll appreciate, which is that, did, have you heard the story about when John Berryman was going to meet Yates? Uh, no, 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 no. Oh my God. So he writes it in a letter. He was going to meet Yates. He planned to meet Yates for tea. And he ended up hanging out with Dylan Thomas before. So what did they do? They get apocalyptically drunk together. Yeah. <laughs> Berryman is like, I met Dylan Thomas at 10 a.m. in the morning, and I'm suddenly so fucking drunk. It's 4 p.m. I can barely <laughs> sit up. And he's talking to Yates. And I think that at one point, he says the only thing he can remember that Yates said is at the, at the end of the lunch, Yates said, can I please smoke one of your cigarettes? I'm going to have it outside alone. <laughs> <laughs> so he just took one of Berryman's cigarettes, smoked it outside alone and that was it but i think that um even then i feel like that speaks to as a kind of cross-generational thing that i feel like was much more interesting that even berryman thomas yates we'd all see as being very different poetic movements but there was still a kind of cultural exchange then but i think to go back to um i think that you are right and i think a lot of has to do with what you picked up on earlier which is that i think that there is a sort of segmentation that again I wonder if the MFA system rewards but I think that also I think I have a lot of friends who work in classical music and composing or a few friends who work with painting and they like my friend who's a painter he's like I don't know anybody who draws right like within even that discipline it's so segmented that he's like I don't know any drawers I only know painters yeah and I think that there's a sort of I don't know I think that that's generally um to the detriment of the current movements. Like, I love that they all would have been hanging out with Stravinsky. 
Right. Yeah. Which no longer happens. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I mean, and it's always hard. I mean, I'm, not, I'm never trying to get definitive answers on something where we're just chatting on a podcast, but it is interesting to just think of like, yeah, you know, is that social media? Is that the mm -hmm. fact that, yeah, everything's on screens? Is it the fact that, you know, the, these kinds of, you know, a magazine that would be about art and literature and literary yeah. magazines, those really can't sustain themselves anymore. They need like university endowments, you know, they can't really mm -hmm. sustain themselves with subscriptions and, and people. Yeah that are interested, I'm, you know, the big ones are grandfathered in, you know, the New Yorker, yeah. you, you yeah. know, whatever, you know. Well, something I'd be intrigued to ask you is that something that I find with myself, and I wonder if it's reciprocal, is that I think that when people ask what my influences are, they're, they're obviously meaning poets. And I think that poets are, obviously poetry is what I write. There's a huge amount of poetic influence, but I still actually see influences from painters or music or different disciplines for me, almost as equal in terms of how they've kind of impacted what I write or even film. Yeah. I think that I'm as influenced by, I don't know, The Fly by David Cronenberg or yeah. Blue Velvet than, yeah. I, than I am by a poem that I really love. And I think that this idea of almost seeing influence is solely happening within this sort of specific canon, which I guess, I mean, do we blame or thank Harold Bloom for that? I think that, um, <laughs> I think there's a sort of, but I wonder whether, like, I think that for me, I feel like I write because I read Sylvia Plath as a teenager, but I also write because I got really into, like, Chagall is a painter and Edward Monk is a painter and yeah. I like all these music things that also for me act as kind of equivalent influences yes. and I think that I see those all as kind of part of a similar soup that I'm taking from yeah. and I think that's almost set, like it'd be almost I don't know like finding a potato in a stew and only talking about the potato right yeah absolutely I 100% that was one of my, my next question was yeah if you're four plus ultra and I just to, I know this is broader but just for your collection we have a plug in here which hey. I said would you believe there's still an extra hour of conversation left? Well, there is. And if you want to hear the full uncensored episode, you need to subscribe at patreon.com slash heavy board, where you will receive full uncensored episodes like this without any interruptions, ads, or anything else. And that's for subscribers only at patreon.com slash heavy board. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe today and join the conversation. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored.
you the night sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.